amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, my dark darlings. I'm Markia, and this is the Something Scary Podcast. To our veteran listeners and those voyaging into the dark with us for the first time, welcome. I'm glad that you're spending part of your holiday season with us here in the dark. In fact, I think that might make the light that much brighter for you. Now, all year long, Fans keep asking for more Japanese horror, but we're happy to deliver. I personally haven't traveled to Japan yet, but I intend to one day. I'm going to, well, of course, Tokyo. Everyone thinks of that first, but the snow festival in Sapporo. Want to go to Osaka, Japan's kitchen, and eat myself broke, as it were. And then, of course, go to Kapabashi Street. My father is a retired executive chef, and it would be a dream come true to be able to share that rich culture with him. Japan is no stranger to rich folklore on various mythical beasts and urban legends, and not all of these stories are pleasant. Some tale of horrifying creatures, others about tyrannical demons. Join us today as we investigate terrifying tales of Japan. First, we'll take a voyage across the sea and hear the ravings of an old ship captain. Next, we'll get dangerously hungry in 18th century Japan. After that, we'll see where the path of greed will lead us. And finally, we'll encounter a snow witch in the dead of winter. We receive hundreds of creepy story submissions every single week. And as always, the first story you hear is one that we've chosen to animate and post over at youtube.com snarled. Then, I read a few more stories for the podcast. If you have a tale you're dying to share, send me an email at somethingscary@snarled.com. And if you'd like to support the show and receive bonus content, consider joining our Patreon. Our patrons play a huge role in keeping the show running every single week. For more information on how you can help the show and also be a part of it, visit patreon.com snarled. So, want to hear something scary? Old Japanese myths often detailed sea serpents and monsters swimming beneath the sea on long voyages. It was mostly all colorful explanations for bad weather, but some tales claim to be anything but fiction. Let's learn about the monstrous Omibazu, inspired by a story submission from Marble. Captain Otto had faced many storms in his long career at sea. He could read the skies and smell coming storms in the air. Otto had lost many good crew members and friends over the years. Yet, in his old age, Otto's latest crew merely thought of him as senile and superstitious, albeit experienced. He spoke of oily serpents and monstrous fish with great barbed tails that could cut ships in half. Otto would whisper about the Omi Bozu, 
Monks and priests who were thrown into the ocean and drowned, becoming restless spirits enraged and merciless towards any ship unfortunate enough to cross their path. Otto's crew could only roll their eyes. Their ship was delivering textiles to a nearby island. They had no fear of superstitions. But one clear day, Otto was especially anxious. The crew thought their captain was worrying needlessly. The sky was an endless blue, and the sea's gentle winds and waves were idyllic. It was smooth sailing. But then, the wind picked up. The waves grew choppy and rough as clouds darkened the sky. The crew shouted, manning their stations. Otto stood, fear-struck on the deck, staring out into the frothing ocean. A thick fog choked the air, and soon the crew could barely make out the horizon. The ship began to rumble, and sailors cried out in alarm as a dark figure erupted from the boiling sea. Its skin was blacker than squid ink with water dripping off like oil, and its strange bulbous head pulsed beneath the rain. Its terrible frog eyes were fixed in a glare as it raised a tentacle-like arm and swiped across the deck, sending screaming sailors flying into churning waters. The crew bellowed, racing to the ship's cannons to defend themselves. Otto waved his arms and shouted, ordering the crew to bring him empty barrels. This was a Omibazu, and Otto only knew of one way to defeat it. Present the angry spirit with a bottomless barrel for it to fill with water and escape during the confusion. But Otto's crew believed that their captain finally had broken and dismissed his orders, readying the cannons instead. The Omubazu fists crashed against the hull as they fired. Otto watched in horror as the Omubazu then reached for the mast and pulled. He desperately grabbed a red barrel and offered it up to the Omubazu's rage. Omubazu seemed to watch him as Otto felt himself slide down the deck alongside his crew as the ship capsized, cannons still firing. Plummeting into the freezing water, Otto struggled to hold his breath and sank into the darkness. When Captain Otto awoke, the sea was calm. He was bobbing along the water in the red barrel all alone. Relief washed over him, followed swiftly by guilt. It seemed that he was the Omibazu's sole survivor. His offering of the barrel proved successful. Looking around, Otto spotted a ship not far away and began to wave and shout. The ship came closer and Otto once again was overcome with relief. As the men on the ship helped him aboard, Otto's urgent explanation of what happened to him and his crew escalated to hysterics. He screamed of the Omubazu and the way it decimated his ship, grabbing and shaking the sailors, begging them to head to land as quickly as possible. These new men exchanged apprehensive glances and all sounded like the ravings of a sun-baked castaway to them, and they locked Otto in an iron cell in the brig. As the ship continued on its journey, Otto watched from his porthole in the brig. The sky was clear and the day was peaceful. It made him uneasy. As Otto watched, he began to see debris that looked familiar pieces of a ship's hull, the portion of a mass, crates of textiles. That was his ship. His blood ran cold. He began to howl and bang against the brig. The waves slowly became bigger, crashing violently against the porthole. Otto could see a fog rolling in and the sky darkening. The crew above was too busy preparing for the oncoming storm to hear his screams. 
Otto watched helplessly as a familiar dark figure rose up from the sea, its terrible eyes piercing Otto through the porthole. The ship rumbled and creaked as the only Bazu assailed the crew. Otto was thrown about his cell while cannons boomed above him. Wood splintered and exploded when the Omibazu's limb crashed down through the deck, splitting the ship in two. Otto's cell began to fill with water. He desperately rattled the bars and screamed for help, but the rest of the crew were dead or dying. Otto could only look up into the face of the Omibazu as he sank beneath the waves once more. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hunger is a close and constant companion for each of us, but is it more dear to us than friends, or even family? We'll find out for sure in this Japanese myth of two sisters, inspired by Zhao. A long time ago, sometime during the 17th and 18th centuries, there was a little girl called Yue. She had a rare name for her time, and even rarer for a girl. It was originally given to boys only and meant... The hunger. Yue's parents picked the name before she was born, believing she was a boy due to the unusual kicking and large cravings her mother had during pregnancy. Growing up, little Yue always had a large appetite at mealtimes, but because her family was so poor, she was never able to satiate her continuous hunger. Although they were poor, Yue's family took pride in a large house they lived in, They'd had that house for generations. Yue's father would often say, even if the walls were peeling and the wood had some rot, it fit all of them. One day, Yue's parents left the town for a few days to attend an event for their new jobs. It was highly uncommon in Japan at the time for the parents to leave their children alone for long periods of time. However, this was a desperate occasion. If they both went, they could earn enough money at their jobs to buy a new house and to afford a proper education for their children. Although Yue's older sister Suki was of age to be independent and look after her younger sister, they were still uneasy. It's only a few days, they told her. At first, everything was fine. They established a routine and got along as well as siblings could without parental supervision. On the third day, Suki began stretching their meals and doing smaller portions, much to Yue's protests. Better to have smaller meals than no meals, she thought. On the fifth day, Suki cleaned the kitchen and family room while Yue played with her little wooden figurines. Her grandfather had carved them for her, featuring different samurai with long, detailed katanas, either in their hands or harnessed to their backs. After a while, though, Yue grew bored and, as always, hungry. She went to her sister and asked when supper would be ready. 
I'll start preparing something in a bit, Suki smiled as she used the well water to clean some plates. Until she saw her sister's annoyed face and bent down, eye level with Yue. I'll tell you what, if you behave for a little longer while I finish the plates, I'll play a game with you, okay? Yue nodded and played with her figurines on the floor while Suki washed. Sometimes, when she'd look over to check on Yue, she'd notice that she would gnaw on her figurines. Teeth marks lined so many of her younger sister's things, like her pencils or toys. Most of her wooden toys were gnawed to stumps. It was her constant hunger. After Suki left cabbage soup stewing, they agreed to take turns of finding each other around the house. Suki looked first. One, two, three, nineteen, twenty, Suki cried. I'm coming to find you, Yui. She was looking for a while and could not find her. She had looked everywhere, except one place. She nervously climbed the dusty staircase to the attic and stopped. She could hear muffled sounds coming from within. It sounded like her sister. Swallowing past her suddenly dry throat, Suki clutched her oil lamp and slowly opened the door. But she couldn't see you, eh? She didn't want to venture further into that dark space, but she wouldn't give her little sister the satisfaction of knowing she was scared. So, she took a deep breath and took a step forward, then another, another, until she had to let go of the door. As she held the door and tried to wedge her lamp to hold it, she looked down at her feet to see Yue eating a dead rat. Horrified, Suki slapped the rat out of her mouth and seized her by the wrist. Yue shouted and sank her teeth into Suki's arm, making Suki yelp in pain. Suki yanked her wounded arm from Yue's eager mouth and dragged her down to dinner, kicking and screaming. Suki cleaned her wounds while Yue quickly demolished the cabbage and rice. Yue's sharp teeth had taken some of her flesh and she was bleeding. Later that night, Yue's stomach began to protest and cry out, reminding her of her quickly eaten meal of dried yam, rice, and cabbage. Feeling hollow once again, always aching, she slowly gnawed on one of her wooden figurines. Anything, she thought. I could eat anything. Her thoughts slid into a dark place. She thought of how delicious Suki's flesh had tasted. Far more delicious than the rat or her cooking. Suki was sleeping beside her. Yue's breathing quickened as she gazed at her sister, her belly knifed with pain, clawing at her, demanding more, always more. Yue constantly felt on the verge of starvation. As she smelled the metallic tang of blood as it seeped out of slumbering Suki's bandaged arm, Yue snapped. Tired yet excited to finally get home to their two girls, Suki and Yue's parents made it back a week later than they thought they would be gone. Upon opening the door, a rotten smell greeted them. Getting frantic while calling for their girls, the parents came upon their room. Wails filled their humble home as they saw what remained of Suki within the girls' bed. The blood-stained mattress, missing flesh all over her body, at places 
picked and licked to the bone, and beside her sat Yue, or specifically Yue's torso, rotting with her arms and legs eaten to stumps, just like her wooden toys. They say that the spirit of Yue lives on, trapped on earth because of her horrible, ravenous deed. She takes the form of her dead body, a rotting head and torso, a gaping hole where her heart should be, and her distorted mouth bloody and wide. They call her the Kofuku, or the spirit of hunger. And you always know where she's been because of the worn wooden dolls she leaves behind, forever in search of enough food to finally sate her hunger. Thank you, Zhao, for sharing this tale with us. I'm going to keep this in mind during this holiday season when I'm eating with family and friends. And you have to wait on food and it just feels like you could just get so hungry waiting. I wonder if Yue would ever be full. Her hunger was, in fact, infinite. What would you do if you encountered Kofuku? Would you keep a protein bar in your pocket, just in case? Or would you just hope that it would never happen, and if it did, the Kofuku would know what to do with you? Scary Story Podcast brings original, short, scary stories right to your ears every week. Like Dead of Night, the story of a man who moves into a new apartment building only to discover its sinister foundation. Or another recent one, The Delivery, where a man discovers a family secret hidden in plain sight. Have you ever listened to a scary story that lingers as if it reminds you of a long-lost memory? My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and writer over at Scary Story Podcast, where every episode brings you a short, original scary story every week. The stories are read just like this, me telling you a frightening story that will blur the lines between this and the world of hauntings, ghosts, and experiences that defy logical explanation. You can join us by searching for Scary Story Podcast on your app right now. It's the show by Scary FM. I'll see you over on Scary Story Podcast. Love at first sight is a beautiful saying, and if lucky, it can happen to the best of us, and also the worst of us. In this next story, inspired by Grace, we see just how blind love can be. Everyone soon knew about Yui when she moved into town. She was arguably the most beautiful woman in rural Japan, and half the town was smitten with her. She said that she had come looking for work and hoped to find the right offer for her soon. Men and women alike would try to get her attention and want to spend time with Yui, but some were distrustful of her. Superstitious, they were uncomfortable with how Yui described her origins. Whenever someone would ask where she was from, Yui would just laugh and remark, Nowhere, I rose from the ground. This was peculiar and scared some people away, but not others. One particularly adamant suitor of Yui's was the region's tax collector, an especially nasty man named Asahi. He was known to swindle the poor and uneducated, and also, having been born rich, had never known a day of poverty. Believing that others were poor because they had simply not tried hard enough not to be, 
He found pleasure in using every trick he knew to amass more wealth. This expanded his holdings, yes, while also making enemies of all who had dealings with him. Enamored by her beauty, Asahi thought it only fitting that she should be the wife on his arm. Day after day, he would attempt to woo Yui with expensive gifts and treats. But much to the town's delight, for they hated Asahi, Yui did not give him a second glance. That was, until Asahi arrived with an accrusted brooch with an ornate family crest on the front. Transfixed by the item, Yui finally agreed to meet Asahi. They agreed to a date that evening at the hillside home that Asahi was the new owner of. Excited to finally have Yui's regard, Asahi made sure the dinner table was laden with delicate and succulent foods and that the servants were away so he could have her all to himself. When Yui arrived, her eyes swept over the selection of sweets, meats, and gifts and announced that she had brought a gift for him. Bundle in her arms was a large scroll, and once she unfurled it, upon it looked to be a beautiful handwritten script. She then guarded it close to her chest as she smiled and kneeled near where Asahi sat upon the floor. Asahi moved in for a quick kiss, but Yui stopped him abruptly. She then gave him a small smile and said, My dear Asahi, may I ask you a question? Eagerly, he agreed. Have you ever sinned in your life? Asahi was taken aback. He didn't know how to respond. He controlled half the town's wealth, of course he had, but so did others, and far worse than himself, he was sure, and said so. Is there anyone that has ever known you that wouldn't be happier with you gone, Yui asked. Asahi froze at that. Yui revealed the ornate script to Asahi. It was a list of names. Asahi recognized some of them as the names of people that he had swindled out of their savings. Most had disappeared afterwards. Some had taken their own lives, and at least one he knew had died after turning to a life of crime trying to recoup their losses. And there, that was the name of the previous owner of this house. Asahi himself had had him arrested on suspicion of treason. Asahi had also seen to it that the man had died while in custody thusly getting this house that had stood further up on the hill than his previous home. The list went on. Asahi slowly realized that this, this was a list of the dead. And not just any dead. Those that were dead because of him. Asahi cursed at Yui, asking her why. Why would she ever show him this? Yui merely smiled again and pointed at the bottom of the list. The final name stood starkly apart from the rest. It boldly said, Yui. Asahi stepped back in fear as Yui began to cackle in glee. Her robes flew off to reveal the ghostly form of a woman. Wind picked up and knocked Asahi to the floor. He cowered as he realized that Yui was an umbaki, a ghost of the dead. He held up the brooch to Yui, offering it in place of his life. Yui thanked him for returning her family brooch. She knew where he had received it from. It had been a final, heartbroken payment from her family, towns away from here. 
a payment that he had pocketed, saying that he hadn't received it, marking her family as liars, casting them from their home in the dead of winter to die together in the cold. Asahi knew she was telling the truth. Flooded with adrenaline, he ran through his ill-gotten home, screaming for help, but no one in town would come to the aid of the self-serving tax collector. Yui floated purposely just behind him, hunting him, intoning, Oh my Natamashiwuku. Oh my Natamashiwuku. Oh my Natamashiwuku. I will devour your soul. A great sucking wind funneled from her pursed lips, and Asahi stumbled backwards. The life drained from his eyes as Yui sucked the soul out of his hollowing form. A weak imitation of Asahi remained, toppling over onto the ground like overly folded origami. No one in town actually knew what happened to Asahi that night, and no one cared. Because of all the woe he had sown, they buried him quickly, for all were now happier with him gone. Thank you, Grace, for sharing this tale with us. Have you ever heard of an ubaki, vengeful ghost of the dead? Kind of like the thought of someone coming back to make sure that justice was done. Do you think Asahi got what he deserved? Would there have been a possibility of redemption for him if the ubaki had shown him mercy? Or was he too far along his path of greed? And do you think that he was irredeemable? I don't see this so much as an eat the rich scenario, but I do see it as never be so blind as to not see what you do to others. And now, we venture into the frosty wilderness of Japan for a winter fairy tale, inspired by Santiago, who shared the story of a spellbinding snow witch. Many years ago, in a village in Japan, there was a young man named Minokichi, who owned an inn with his father, Masaku. On the way back from a trip one winter day, there was a freak blizzard. Father and son sought refuge in a small hut in the wilderness that hunters use. Finding little firewood to beat back the cold, they prepared it all in one bigger fire to keep warm throughout the night. In the middle of the night, Minokichi suddenly awoke to snowflakes falling upon his face. The world was quiet and still as the snowflakes slowly drifted down. Hearing a wheeze to his left, he turned and saw the most beautiful woman he had ever seen kneeling next to his father, Masaku. He watched as her eyes burned with an unnatural wintry fire, and his father breathed the final gasp, then becoming lifeless and frozen, his warmth taken by her supernatural force. Before he could react, she was then beside him. Minokichi shivered as he felt her cold breath, just as cold as the snowflakes had felt feathering across his skin. I am Yuki Ona, the woman whispered into the wintry stillness. I am the Snow Witch. I was going to take your warmth in life as I have your father's, but I will spare you that because you are so beautiful. 
Never speak of this day or you will meet a fate worse than you could ever imagine. Swear on the life of your family you will not break your vow. Looking over at his only family, his dead father Masuku, Minokichi swore to keep her existence a secret. The Snow Witch then turned and disappeared into the fading storm. Minokichi returned to his village and his life. His father was mourned. Surprisingly, there were few victims from the village of that freak blizzard. Life moved on. The seasons changed. And he met a beautiful young lady named Oyuki and offered her work at his family's inn. Her beauty rivaled the Snow Witch that he encountered so long ago in the woods. Together they ran the inn and were soon happily married. Eventually they were joined by six children and Oyuki's beauty never faded as the years went by. On a family trip, Minokichi and Oyuki were caught in a violent snowstorm with their children. Secure within their cabin and inspired by the freak storm outside, Minokichi sat by the fire and told his children the story of what had really happened to their grandfather and the snow witch he had encountered. The children quivered in fear, asking why would she kill their grandfather and wondered if they too would be in danger from the witch. Asking for their mother who was preparing supper, the family went into the kitchen to find her. Oyuki was nowhere to be found. The snow witch took her. The children cried, searching for their mother, Returning to the main room, in the corner of the room, facing away from them stood a long-haired figure. The children cowered behind their father. Who are you? Leave this house at once, Minokichi shouted. I told you to not tell a soul, the figure whispered, the only sound besides the crackling of the fireplace. You made a vow, the figure turned to face them revealing itself to be Oyuki. Minokichi watched as her glamour gave away, her earthly beauty transforming back into the ethereal beauty of Yuki-ona, the Snow Witch. Speaking to her children, I took your grandfather's warmth and life and used it to stabilize the blizzard that winter. Without his sacrifice, many more would have died. She turned her attention back to Minokichi and sadly said, you made a vow and will suffer the consequence of breaking it. Do you remember what you swore on? The children's voices had fallen quiet. Turning around, Minokichi cried out as he realized that each of his children had turned into snow versions of themselves, frozen, perfectly shaped in their huddled positions behind him. Crying out, Minokichi turned to Yukiona pleading that they be changed back to take his warmth instead. Yukiona shook her head. I cannot. The spell has been broken. They are what I am. At those words, the shutters and doors blew open, pouring the wind and storm into the cabin. After running to shut the elements out of the cabin once more, Minokichi discovered the cabin to be empty. His children and his wife, the Snow Witch, nowhere to be found. His only companion, the cabin fire, quickly melting the snow blown inside away. The village had much to whisper about Minokichi after that, as he sold his family's end, supplied up, and began searching for his family among the snowy wilderness. 
They say there are many tales about his adventures after he headed off into the deep snowy valley, but they do know that he never returned to that village again. Thank you, Santiago, for sharing this Japanese folklore with us. It's actually pretty well known and there are many different versions of it. Would you like to meet Yuki Una or any witch, or let's be specific here, fairy tale witch in the woods? Seems to be a mixed bag for any traveler that comes upon them. But one thing does seem to stay constant. Keeping your word goes a long way towards keeping your life and the lives of the ones around you safe. In particular, I want to know, do you think the children were real or were they always snow creations? This week's podcast stories were edited by Ash Moon, Marquia McCarty, Adam Sinker, and Sabina Graves. Audio edited by Johnny Ashley and Calvin Lenderman. Produced by Annalise Nelson. Music by Sapphire Sandalo. If you have a story you'd like to submit, send me an email at somethingscary@snarl.com. Don't forget to watch the video version of Something Scary over at youtube.com snarled. And if you'd like to support the show and receive bonus content, join our Patreon at patreon.com snarled. Until next time, my dark darlings, sweet dreams. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.